Hi there, I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of Live Healthy, and this is the Live Healthy podcast. Each week we interview health and wellness leaders and talk about all the things that are good for you, which you can also read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women in the UAE. And now, here's this week's guest. Today on the Live Healthy podcast, we have Dr. Seema Sheth. She's a urologist at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. She comes from the University of Connecticut, where she was a faculty member, and she's a leading expert in treating female urologic problems, uh, including incontinence and pelvic prolapse. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I remember someone put a picture of a urology convention on social media and it was all men and they wrote, what's wrong with this picture? You're, <laughs> you are rare. Are you, are you a rare woman in this field? Um, yeah, you know, I, I think we're getting more popular, but um, I will say, you know, I graduated from Cornell and at that time, I think I was the seventh female to ever graduate from that program. Um, so it's getting wow. more common to see us, but yes, we are a rare, rare we're rare birds, I would say. Well, this is an interesting situation because obviously men have these problems too, but women have a lot of them, considering that, you know, pregnancy and as they move through their lives. So um, if, I don't know, do you find when you see women that they're relieved to see you? To yeah, see you know, yeah, good question. Are we... I would say urologic problems are at least 50-50, even though it's somehow considered a very male-dominated field. Um, you know, we always associate prostate cancer with urology, but we do so much more. So if you look at kidney stones, for example, you're going to see half of the kidney stones are going to happen in women. Um, and then as far as leakage goes, you see leakage in men, you see overactive bladder in men, but I would say you're going to far more commonly see that in women. So our patient population really is 50-50. But if you look at the patients who actually come to clinic, they're mostly male. Uh, and I think I ha that has a lot to do with females being one kind of don't really want to speak about the subject of incontinence, don't really want to speak about things maybe falling out that shouldn't be falling out. They're a little bit shy about it. They're definitely not going to talk to a male physician as easily as they are going to talk to a female physician. Um, so I think that's part of why you don't really see them coming to clinic. But I think the other part is a lot of the times you just think, oh, it's normal, right? I've had a few kids. I leak a little bit of urine. That's normal. Um, and, and the fact of the matter is sure. And I, I sit down with most of the women that come in. I say, sure, it's I guess you can consider it a normal, quote unquote, part of aging. But it doesn't mean we have to live with it in any way. Okay. So what are the main problems then you deal with? Uh, so I, I, I'll see them all. I see the full gambit, wh whether it's blood in the urine or kidney stones. Um, I, I have tailored my practice down, though. I hardly do very much cancer anymore. Um, so I focus on the females and all of our urologic cancers are a little bit are more rare to find in the females. So I will do stones. I do a lot of, lot of leakage and um, prolapse. So any sort of feelings of something dropping out of the vagina. Okay. So let's just dive into all those. First of all, leakage. 
Now you hear, I've never had kids, but I hear this is a problem when women um, have children. And then I hear it's a problem later as they get into perimenopause and menopause. So can you just sort of talk about that issue and what, what, it, what it can run the gamut from and what you can do? Sure. Um, so there's many types of leakage. And I think one of the first things we try to determine is what kind of leakage a patient has. Um, you're right. It's more common with aging. It's more common with pregnancies, more common if you deliver vaginally. Um, and it's more common with obesity as well. Uh, we differentiate between something called stress incontinence, which is leakage with coughing, sneezing, exercise, versus urge incontinence, which is what it sounds like. I get the urge to go and I just can't make it to the bathroom in time. And then there's a few other more I have rare incontinences, things like overflow incontinence, where your bladder is just so full that it just starts dripping, or what we call functional incontinence, which you'll see in some patients who are all of a sudden, they've had a stroke, maybe they're in a wheelchair, and they probably could make it to the bathroom in time, but they just physically can't make it to the bathroom in time. They just don't have that mobility anymore. But I'd say the majority of the times people are coming to see me have one of the first two, either the urge or the stress incontinence. Okay. And then how does it sort of, cause it all seems to like the prolapse issue. Can you talk about the prolapse issue? Cause I think they're kind of like all interconnected, right? It's sort of hard to pull one out of the other. Yeah, you're right. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes we see prolapse without the other two and many times we'll see incontinence without the other two, but oftentimes we see both together. And it, it's really because they all stem from the same problem and in our typical female, we could say that she's had multiple babies, she's delivered vaginally, the muscles and what we call the fascial layers in the vagina just kind of loosen. With mm -hmm. that comes things dropping and mm -hmm. can come leakage with coughing and sneezing because the support mechanism just isn't there anymore to kind of hold it up. Okay. So you, like you say in your bio that women suffer needlessly with some of these conditions, what can you do? What can be done? Yeah, I, I think probably the most important thing I do is to tell the patients that it is relatively common and that they're not alone. And if they're coming to see me, there's obviously an issue that they've dealt with for so long that they're finally sick of it. Um, so I am I'm there to help them. And probably the most important part is that I can help them, uh, that this isn't like a lost cause that I'm just going to say, yep, you know, you can do some Kegels and that's it. That's all I got for you. There's a lot more that goes into it. And most times, most times I can get you to a point where you're happy at least. Um, and I, I, I think as a patient, if I was that patient, I'd feel comfortable by that, which is why I start with that. But we have so many treatment options. And, and it's really since it isn't something like a tumor, right, it isn't like I have to take it out. Otherwise, you may die from this. It truly is. Listen, here's all your options. This is how far you're going to get. If you do this one option, maybe you'll be 50% better. If you do this option, you'll be 90% better. You pick and you choose what you would like to do. And I'm happy to help you get there. Okay, what, what are some of the options? Then? Okay, so because we have different types of incontinence, they're caused by different reasons, and therefore they have different treatment options. So if we look at stress incontinence, um, I'll have some patients, for example, they say, look, I leak only when I exercise. I'll have them put a tampon in. When they go to exercise, 
they'll take okay. the tampon out and they're done, right? They've got a good support mechanism holding up the urethra, they won't leak. I have others who don't want any sort of surgical procedure at all, which is fine. They don't wanna put anything in their vagina, that's fine. I'll send them to physical therapy where they'll get some benefit, not perfect, but they will get some benefit. Um, I have others who are like, listen, I leak every day during the daytime, but at night I'm totally fine and I really don't want a procedure. So we've got different, what I call space occupying devices. So they may not want to buy tampons for the whole year, but we have these silicone devices called pessaries, which we can fit to, to their body. Um, they would put it in during the morning. They take it out at night before they go to bed. Um, and then we have surgical options. We have minimally invasive ones, which I like to describe as fillers, where we basically use a filler in the urethra to bulk it up and kind of narrow the opening. The other option then would be different sort of sling surgeries. And we have many slings. We've got mesh slings. We can use, make slings out of their own material, their own fascia. Um, and that's probably the gold standard procedure for stress incontinence. Um, and then for urge incontinence, kind of a different story. There, some lifestyle changes. I've had some patients come in, they tell me they drink eight cups of coffee a day. And just by cutting the coffee out or coffee down even to one or two cups, it'll help their urge incontinence. Um, mm. Weight loss will help. Physical therapy will help that. There's many, many medications they can try for urge incontinence. And if all of that fails, uh, we put Botox in the bladder, which is a really great option where you get Botox placed once on average every six months into the bladder. We have a nerve stimulation device that's done in the office. And then when all of that fails, we have an implantable nerve stimulation device. So there are so, there's so many options really for the leakage. Wow. And um, I hear a lot about pelvic floor physiotherapy. You're saying you might send someone to phys physical therapy for that. What, what did they do there? Yeah. I mean, I, I love physical therapy as an option because I really see it as there's no downside of doing it, right? Like it either helps you or it doesn't help you, but it's never going to hurt you. Um, and they, they have a gambit of stuff they do. It's pretty impressive, including things like strengthening your core to fix your incontinence, um, deep breathing exercises. So there's actually some breathing exercises you could do to give you that extra 10 seconds you need to just unbutton your pants to get onto the toilet seat. Um, so it, it sounds sounds somewhat out there. And for people who've never done physical therapy before, it's hard to believe that it actually works, but it does. Well, there's a whole pelvic floor clinic at Cleveland Clinic, isn't there? Yes, we do, which is wonderful. And we have an entire female pelvic floor clinic, um, Dr. Lamise from Colorectal, uh, takes care of that part. Elif is our physical therapist who is female. Um, I have my part that I do. We've got colorectal, I mean, sorry, um, gastroenterologists that will do the colonoscopies. Um, so our ORs, we make our ORs all female. We really try, we really try to make everyone as comfortable as possible. I see um, a lot of places now recommending like lasers. Can you, do you do that? Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, it's kind of a controversial topic. And I will tell you that I am very by the book. Um, and I think there is only one right situation to use those vaginal lasers. And it was what the laser was created for. So it was created for women who had lack estrogen 
in the vagina causing dryness and pain with sexual intercourse. Okay. So the laser is great for people with breast cancer who are on meds to suppress their estrogen or patients who have gone through menopause who are having pain with sexual intercourse. Truly the laser works beautifully for that. The problem with the laser is people market it for things like vaginal tightening or mm -hmm. for stress incontinence. And truly there's no data to show that that works for any of that. And are there any dangers involved with lasers? I think there's even doctors doing it here in, in the UAE. So I'm just curious. Yeah, you're right. There are quite a few clinics that are doing it. Um, I wish we were. Um, we, we are in the process of getting our machine. Um, it's a relatively safe procedure. Probably the most dangerous part of it um, is it can cause burns. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, that's pretty hard to reverse, right? You would have a lot of scar tissue in the vagina. So it's got to be someone who knows what they're doing. Um, and they're, they actually have to move the probe at a relatively constant speed so that you don't get a burn. Okay. So you'd want to be careful who you got it from and you'd want to be careful what they were claiming just because the data isn't there yet. Right. Okay. What about all these, I'm seeing all these weights and Kegel trainers that are connected to apps um, out there. What, what, what about those? The, you know, I guess you're trying to do it yourself. It's your own. Yeah, you know, right. So if you read, read any of the studies, they'll tell you that Kegels on your own don't really work. Kegels done in conjunction with physical therapy work wonderfully. Um, I think mainly because you get the feedback that you're doing it correctly. Um, when you say Kegels on your own, you mean just Kegels on your own, not using any device to like... Correct, exactly. Like, so like you're like I, if you were lifting weights with no weights, kind of like... Kind of. So I like I actually like the vaginal weights. I recommend them to people. It's a little bit difficult to get them in the UAE. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> well, that, that's the thing. Why that is? I, I don't know. I don't actually. I don't know why in the U.S. You just go to Amazon and there's probably 200 different types that you can buy. Yeah, they're um, not available. I think they classify. I think they might consider them to be part of another uh, genre altogether. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Um, but they do work. Um, and they come in graduated weights, just like having dumbbells, right? So you, they start with the number one. Um, the one thing that patients do wrong is they stick them in too far. But you have, so you have to stick them kind of right, like they're going to fall out. And your job is to keep them in. So if it falls, so I have them do them in the shower, right? You can take a shower every day. That way you always do your weights every day. Um, and if it falls out, you rinse it off and you stick it right back in and keep going. Um, and when you can hold the number one in for your whole shower, you move on to the number two and so on. Um, I have uh, patients who really, really are dedicated to it. They get really good results. Are they, okay, so are they, I'm, I'm, just, I'm really curious about this. So are they just putting them in and just leaving them in? Is that the work that's involved? Yeah. So, I mean, they're heavy if you felt them. Yeah. Um, they don't stay in unless you can hold them oh, in. Okay. So the patients who stick them in too far, like all the way up, I yeah. mean, they're going to stay in because they just can live there in the nice spacious vagina. But yeah. um, if you put it in the correct area, like just at the opening of the vagina, like three quarters in, one quarter out, it, okay. it's tough to keep it in. Okay. Okay, so you just do it for like 10, 15 minutes or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and there are, like you said, there's those, uh, there's much fancier ones that are way more expensive that connect to an app. You know, personally, I don't think they're any better than the vaginal weights are that I don't see the okay. point of spending that much money on them. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. You got to work out all parts of your body. Yeah, <laughs> and the sad part is you can't stop, right? That's the problem with the PT is that oh. you, you do it. 
you can't just stop. It's not like it's going to have a lasting effect. You have to keep oh, doing Oh, right. It's just like working out. You have It's to just keep- like working out. Yep. Okay. It's a journey, not a destination. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, is there anything that I haven't covered on there? Like I just, um, it just seems to be such a, a problem. And I was curious when you said men are more likely to seek help for incontinence at women. Yeah. Cause I think women really normalize it. We think this is just common. And I mean, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a guy. I have no idea what they talk about with their friends, but I know the only reason I've ever discussed this with any of my friends is because this is what I treat and they know it. Um, but if I talk to any of my patients, I say, do you know if your sister leaks? Do you know if your mom leaks? They have no idea. It's not yeah. something that women talk about as, as if it's so taboo to have leakage, right? They may talk about their periods. They'll talk about childbirth. They'll talk about the aftermaths of childbirth, but they won't talk about leaking urine. Okay. Okay. So we should talk about it and it's not abnormal. It's no, right. Okay. I'm really curious too. You're, you're, you're very specialized in UTIs, upper, uh, sorry, urinary tract infections. Yeah, I mean, I do treat uh, recurrent UTIs. Um, so we're talking about people that get more, more than four to six a year. Um, okay. And sometimes it's that that is such a hard aspect of people's lives who get them, you know, you never know when it's going to hit. And when it happens, it hurts. I mean, you really are incapable of doing anything until it's treated. Um so it's a big quality of life issue. Mm-hmm. And there are different stages that we, I, I, we seem to find this, right? We seem to find it around, I guess, you'll see it in, in babies. That's a total anatomical reason. You'll see it around the first time that people are sexually active. It's what they used to call honeymoon cystitis. And then we see it commonly in postmenopausal women. And why, why there's this huge lack of women in between that really don't get it, I have no idea. It's like as if the body got used to something and they're doing right. fine. They're doing fine until menopause hits and there's no more estrogen and now they're not doing fine anymore. Um, so we, it, it is a lengthy process to make sure anatomically they look okay. They're emptying their bladder fine. You know, there are no kidney stones or any other reason that I would think that there is... A, a process where bacteria is just kind of living and not getting cleared with the antibiotics. Um, and, and then I treat those different stages completely differently, right? Like if a 10 year old comes to me with recurrent UTIs, it's not the same way that I'm going to treat a 70 year old with recurrent UTIs. Okay. So how would you treat a 10 year old? So, yeah, so for them, it's more anatomic. Usually, usually they have something called reflux and that's where when they urinate their not just pushing urine out of their body, they're also pushing it back up into the kidneys. So when they finish urinating, all that urine comes right back and settles in the bladder and they can, it's like food for the bacteria to come and live in there. So that's, so we'll look for that. Um, And probably the other more common reason, maybe the most common reason that there's any urinary issues in children is that they're constipated. So they, they may be having bowel movements every day of their life. They're still maybe constipated. Um, So they get a good bowel clean out and they get put on a very good bowel regimen so that they're having soft stools almost daily. Um, In our, in our, 
honeymoon cystitis age, I actually, I don't think there's a, a very good consensus on how to treat those people, but I love, I love to try to treat people without actual medication if possible. Uh, so I will try vaginal probiotics first in those patients. Um, and I have pretty good success with that. I would say 85% of the time they're doing pretty fine with that. And like I said, most of them just kind of age out of it for some reason or another. And then in our postmenopausal women, on almost universally, giving them some vaginal estrogen back will change everything for them. I mean, it's it's the one of the few times in my field where people come back and think that I'm I'm some sort of hero because I fixed something and it was just a really easy fix. Someone just had to tell them to do it. Right. Um what did women need to know to prevent UTIs? I, I know um, for me, whenever I feel one coming on, which is very rare, I have this concentrated cranberry drink and I drink it. And I don't know whether it's a, um, what do you call it? Like, it's just all in my mind. I'm just yeah, <laughs> like a psychosomatic. Yeah. <laughs> a placebo effect. I just yeah, think it works. Sure. Um, I, I don't know. Like what, what do women need to know? Like what, what are the biggest risks and, um, and, and is there any way if you feel it coming on, is there anything you can do before you have to see a doctor? Yeah, so there's emerging data that um, people can actually get rid of UTIs without antibiotics. Okay. Uh, so we've all heard these patients come in and say, well, sometimes I feel it coming on. I just drink a ton of water and it goes away. We used to think those people actually never had a UTI. They just felt like they had some burning when they peed. And of course, drinking a lot of fluid made it go away. But there is emerging evidence that maybe you can clear it that way. Um, but as far as prevention goes, I actually, every single recurrent UTI patient that comes in, I tell them, it's not your fault because it's not how you're wiping. It's not like getting up right after sex to go pee. None, probably, not probably. We know that none of that is actually shown to make much of a difference at all. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So, yeah. right. Okay. They always talk about it like it's going to fix these people and it's not going to fix them. And I think, unfortunately, it kind of consumes their life. You know, they're consumed with the fact, oh, I got to get up now. I got to get up. I got to go pee right now. You know, Um and, and I don't think that's really great. I think control of constipation is important. They should have regular bowel movements, good intake of water. We're talking about making at least a liter and a half of urine a day. Uh, okay. If you're going to make that much, you must be drinking at least two liters of fluid a day. Um, I think those two things will help. There is some data that cranberries help, but it really is has to be an extremely concentrated. So drinking regular cranberry juice that's sweetened is not going to help at all. Um, and there, there is a product called D-Manose, which is, um, a, I guess you can consider it like a supplement that can help with E. coli UTIs. Um, and like I said, I like probiotics. Truly, I prescribe them because I think patients like to use something prescribed and in a pill form, but it's it truly is just lactobacillus, which is what exists in yogurt. Um, so some people will take it orally. It works better if you use it vaginally. Um, so I actually have them take an oral pill and put it into the vagina as a vaginal probiotic. Okay. Can you, is there any way to get that without going to the doctor or should you or no? Yeah, I mean, I think they sell lactobacillus tablets over the counter here. Um, the the difference from the the one that I prescribe has like a, a coating on it. So it's a capsule, not a tablet. Okay. So the capsule actually dissolves. Um, okay. I think a tablet probably wouldn't work in the vagina because it probably wouldn't dissolve. There's not enough like liquid in there to dissolve it. So you wouldn't, if someone's listening, I, you wouldn't recommend just going to the store and getting a probiotic and doing it yourself. I don't think it could hurt you at all, oh, really. 
at all. So like if you wanted to try that, I think that's fine, um, especially if you're in that younger age category. But if you've got anything else going on, like you don't feel like you empty your bladder pretty well or you have a history of kidney stones or you've had some sort of surgery down in the pelvis before, you probably should just start with us. Okay, cool. I um, Do you do work, like are you familiar at all with the microbiome, the vaginal microbiome? I read that they're going to be like mapping it sort of like they've done with the gut. Am I making any sense? Yeah, no, I, I actually, honestly, I don't know much about that. There is also, we do do a urinary microbiome test. Um, there's actually genetic tests that you can do now based on urine samples. Um, and what's interesting is we found that even patients who have negative cultures in the clinic, if we do like a, a DNA basically exam of their urine, you will find bacteria. So although we think of urine as completely sterile, there's probably the evidence is moving towards the fact that we probably have some sort of some sort of bacteria that lives in our bladder and is protective, just like gut microbiome is protective. Right, right. We and need same that. with vaginal, right? Like the whole reason I give them lactobacillus is that's the microbiome that should be living in the vagina. So I like to flood the vagina with it so that nothing else bad can live in the vagina. Okay. Um, and you said D-mannos, is that something you can take regularly or is there something you should take when you feel a symptom? Right. It's preventive. So you should be taking it daily. Okay. Um, now there was an actress in the U.S., Tanya Roberts. She, she used to be on that 70s show. She died of a, of a UTI apparently. She like, is this, I didn't, I did not know this was possible. So I'm, I'm not familiar with her or her case, but we do have infections that can spread up to the kidney. Um, and when that happens, you get something called pyelonephritis and, and that, that can be life-threatening. Okay. So I guess if you have a, 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 a UTI and it's making you feel really ill, you should seek medical attention. Right. If you have any sort of back pain um, at all or fevers, right? You should not get a fever with a simple UTI. That should just never happen. Okay. Um, now I'm hearing a lot about GSM. I don't know how to say it. Genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Yes. GSM. Yeah. Do you do any, are you working in this area? Are you working with this? I mean, you are, but yes. Yeah, no, yeah. I do quite a bit with it. And I also, I think this is probably the area where most physicians are not familiar with yeah. it. Um, I think a, there, there's a lot, if I have a 70 year old come in, and they tell me they burn when they pee and their yeah. cultures are negative. I mean, that is GSM. It's genital urinary symptoms of menopause. I mean, they have very atrophic and thinned out tissues in the vaginal area. If you touch them, they're extremely tender. And those patients are cured with estrogen. <laughs> like if you give them vaginal estrogen, which is extremely safe to use, um, there is no increased risk of breast cancer with it. It is very, very safe. They're, they're, three months later, no problems, no more dysuria. Um, you'll see that in some patients with pain with sexual intercourse, right? Okay. So that's usually due to, that's the genito part of genitourinary symptoms of menopause. You'll, we, we see that in some patients, just like men get phimosis, right? So they get their foreskin that kind of no longer wants to move and stays in one position. Um, women can get phimosis of the skin around the clitoris. Um, and those patients will come in and they say, well, I have a lot of pain with sex. And you examine them and their vagina may look normal, but something's wrong with the clitoris, right? So I think a good exam 
is very important. It's something that is learned and probably not taught as well as it should be taught. Um, and, and I think a good exam could really help those patients from going through a whole other battery of tests that are completely unnecessary. Um, and, and oftentimes, like you said, a lot of urinary complaints would be, are blamed on the wrong thin in our menopausal patients. So it's interesting because you're like a urologist, but you have to be crossing over into gynecology kind of. Yeah, you're right. It's very true. Um, I think our fields cross. I mean, I, I obviously don't deal with any of the ovarian problems yeah. at all. Yeah. I, I don't deal with any menstrual issues at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, anything, anything that could affect the vagina, I still look at, you know, I still see vaginal infections um, and, and can treat them just fine. Um, okay. Re recurrent vaginal infections. That's still part of what I do because they come to me with burning with urination, but it actually right. has everything to do with the vagina and nothing to do with the bladder. Okay. Well, yeah, so interesting. Now let's talk about my nightmare kidney stones. I've never had one. I'm so scared. I, don't know <laughs> I just heard it's the most painful thing you can yep. have. Yeah. They uh, say it's, it's like labor. They say, Oh dear. Okay. So why do you get them? How can you prevent, how can you prevent getting them? So yeah, I, we, um, we don't know in everybody why certain people are susceptible or not. I'm sure there's a genetic factor to it all. Um, we, we do know individual patients can all make them for different reasons. You could have hormonal issues like hyperparathyroidism, not hyperthyroidism, but parathyroidism um, that can help form kidney stones. You can just naturally have kidneys that like to secrete calcium in the urine. When that happens, you have a high level of calcium in your urine, which will precipitate and cause stones. Uh, in some patients, they have high uric acid levels in their urine that will do it. In others, we have high oxalates. Um, these are all found in really good foods like strawberries and spinach and peanuts and chocolate. So foods that are actually relatively healthy to eat um, are high in oxalates and too much of that can get secreted into your urine and then cause stones. Uh, yeah. So I often have patients come in, they say, well, I have stones and I was told to cut down on all these foods and, and, and change that. Is that what I should be doing? And I, I ask them always, well, did someone look at your urine? Did right. they actually analyze your urine and they'll say no. And I'm like, well, then don't do any of that because what works for one patient isn't necessarily what works for the next patient to help prevent the stones. Right. Um, I, I think probably the biggest culprit for all stone formers is they just don't drink enough fluid. Um, and I can say that because I have a kidney stone and I have a little kidney stone in my kidney and I'm just waiting for it to one day pass and me be in just utter pain. But it's truly probably because I just don't drink enough liquid. Um, our, our general advice, if I knew, if I didn't know what kind of stone you made at all, if I didn't even yeah. know you made stones, my general advice would be drink a lot of fluid. Don't eat any red meat. Those would be, that would be my advice. Okay. I drink a lot of fluid just seems to be the number one health. <laughs> yeah. It just it's seems to come up every single time. It's true. And, you know, especially when you live in a climate like here where it is so hot, uh, you're losing a lot of fluid just to the environment, right? In general sweating. Um, that stone formers have to make two to three liters of fluid a day. So that's, that's a lot. I mean, that means they're drinking over three liters of fluid. That's not, that's not easy to do. That means you have to consciously be drinking throughout the day. Yeah. Um, 
Okay. So now just to wrap up when, what are those symptoms like, whoa, don't ignore them. Like these are not, it's not okay. What, you know, not, not like just watch and wait. I'm, I'm a hype, I'm a health anxiety person. So I have to watch and wait everything because I always think I'm dying. <laughs> but, uh, and I haven't yet, but what, uh, <laughs> what's the thing? It's like, no, you need to go. You need to go to the doctor. Fever. Okay. For sure. Um, inability to urinate probably that ah. becomes a problem. So we've, we've seen some patients with prolapse and they, they've noticed for years, they're having a harder and harder time to get the urine out. And then all of a sudden one day they just can't pee. Um, and they're, then they're coming to the ER to have a catheter placed. So I think that if you're getting to that point where it's difficult to get the urine out, you probably should see someone before it gets to the point where you can't. Um, and that's the same with a bladder infection. You'll often see patients, well, it hurts. It hurts. I've been trying for days. It won't go away. I mean, I probably wouldn't wait days. If it's not going away after one or two days, you should probably go see somebody. I mean, you're, you're, it doesn't have to be a urologist. It could be your primary care doctor. They just need to run a urine sample. Yeah. Um, but for what I do, those are probably the two reasons. If you've got visible blood in your urine, you should probably come see us directly. Um, so especially if you have visible blood in the urine without any other symptoms, like it doesn't hurt to pee, but you see blood in your urine. So I've seen a few patients come in um, that have had blood in their urine over the years and they just ignore it because it goes away. So they just ignore it. Uh, that's probably not a good idea. Okay. Okay. And drink water, drink lots of fluids, not coffee, not coffee. No. Lots of water. <laughs> okay. Well, good luck with your kidney stone. Thank you so much for talking to us. My pleasure. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the Live Healthy Podcast.